Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 41, and I'm wrapping up my dissertation, if you will, on plywood. We're going to talk about plywood adhesives and the application, how it's done. And then I'm going to wrap everything up with a whole bunch of questions that you guys have submitted. So first and foremost, thank you so much to everybody who's gotten me questions. I've gotten questions via Instagram, via the website, and uh, actually a few via my Renaissance Woodworker Instagram account as well. So lots of great stuff, a wide variety of things. We'll be touching on all of it today. And I should say somewhere I got the episode numbers mixed up. Actually, not somewhere. Uh, right around episode 39, which technically should have been episode 38. I numbered it to 39. So yeah, if you're listening to these and going, wait a minute, what happened to episode 38? It doesn't exist. I could go back, I suppose, to some future date and release a super secret episode 38. But I think at this point, now that we're on 41, I'm just going to plow ahead. So apologize for the confusion there. So here we are. We've talked about face veneers. We've talked about the core. We've talked about how to buy plywood, but what holds it all together, right? It's the glue. And there's a lot of people that can say, you know, the majority of the plywood actually could be glue, depending on the type of plywood you're buying. There is a lot of glue in there. And there's been some advancements in glue technology, if you will, as of late, mostly in response to environmental restrictions like CARB 1, CARB 2, and now the Tosca Title VI compliance that limits the amount of formaldehyde that can be used in glue. The fact is, formaldehyde is still being used, folks, but it's a, it's a matter of keeping the parts per million low enough to get inside those um, requirements, those Tosca Title VI requirements. There have been the introduction of soy-based glues that all but eliminates, almost eliminates formaldehyde from the glue, and those have been shown to work extraordinarily well. We're starting to see those come up more and more as just kind of the de facto glue uh, because they are Tosca Title VI compliant, and there's a now a long enough history in those soy-based glues that we aren't showing delamination over time. We're still showing the same workability and the strength, and I think it's highly possible that for the lion's share of interior plywood panels, we're gonna see the soy-based stuff kind of take over because it's probably safe to say that the environmental restrictions, that parts per million allowance for formaldehyde is probably going to continue to shrink. Maybe not for a while, but we probably will see that continue to go down and continuing to align manufacturing processes with these soy-based glues just kind of makes sense over the long run. So I wanted to bring up soy-based first because it's out there and you probably are already using a plywood panel that does actually have a soy-based glue. But if we talk around that, if you will, there's really, I mean, there's a bunch of different chemical formulations and you'll find a lot of times the glue and the formulation that's used can in some ways be a trade secret. It's the 11 herbs and spices that a particular manufacturer may use. They will disclose the type of glue um, that they're using, but not necessarily the chemical composition. Similar to the finishing industry, where they have to disclose certain things, but not necessarily all the things, or for that matter, the, the combination and the ratio of those things. But formaldehyde, for the most part, is found in all of the different types of glue that are out there. You're gonna have um, certainly urea formaldehyde glue. That's probably the most common. That's what you find more often than not on interior panels. And then you're gonna have melamine and from phenolic glues. 
These are a lot harder, a lot more durable, and more weather resistant. It's what you're gonna start finding in exterior panels and even marine grain panels. Now there are other um, phenol-resorchic type, I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, um, glues out there. And I, and I could probably point to 10 other glues if I started Googling types of plywood glue. You're gonna find a whole bunch of different ones. The fact of the matter is, if you're buying an internal panel, it's probably a urea formaldehyde panel, or it's a soy-based urea formaldehyde panel, uh, glue in the panel. If you're buying an exterior plywood, it's gonna be a melamine or a phenolic type glue. Now, if you're buying true marine grade plywood, you wanna be looking for waterproof, boilproof glue. So W, what, WBP glue. Um, you'll see that listed as WBP. This is still primarily a phenolic or melamine based glue, but it's subjected to boiling water for long periods of time with no delamination. This is what you're gonna find in the high quality BS 1088 marine grade ply. It's really overkill for your exterior grade plywood that you might, you know, she the house with, or, you know, the lowest quality of exterior grade would be something that I would maybe board my windows up before a hurricane came in. That doesn't really require that level of waterproof, boilproof glue, but it's still gonna be using more than likely a melamine-based glue for those. So that's the clear distinction. If we wanted to say there were the three types, urea formaldehyde, melamine, and phenolic, the phenolic and melamine can almost be lumped together as exterior grade, whereas the urea formaldehyde is your interior grade. And again, you'll even find polyvinyl acetate, PVA, your typical wood glue. You will certainly find that showing up, um, used a lot of times in, um, uh, as a veneer layer, which is the other point, you may actually find different types of glue in the same panel. Some glues are gonna be better on the veneer surface for, for um, how much they might bleed through the surface or not bleed through the surface. You also will find that a lot of times the glue is specifically tinted. So you've ever been working with a sheet and you see this like pink layer or blue or green layer, that's the actual glue and it's specifically tinted in order to get an idea of how much glue has been put on the surface. You can imagine if the glue is white or, or nearly transparent and it's sprayed onto the surface or even rolled onto the surface, it sometimes can be hard to see, is there a dry spot? Have we missed a spot? And they will tint the glue in order to, sh to visibly be able to see an even coat of glue across the surface. So that's what the colors are. The colors don't really indicate a type of glue. It's more of a tint that's being applied just to see that it's being spread unevenly. They used to be able to say that the tent could tell you who the manufacturer was, but I don't really think that's the case anymore. Now, as far as application goes, you really can roll it on um, or spray it on. There are other variations of their like curtain uh, coaters and um, like foam extenders where they'll put a bead on and kind of squeegee it across the surface. But I think the most common would be rolled and exactly as it, it, as it sounds, take one giant roller that is coated with glue and it's rolling the glue on. Um, spraying, I think, is probably what you will find more often not these days. It um, creates a much more even coat, but you also have a lot more control over the coat. So in the last episode, when I talked about how certain things can be changed around in order to um, 
change the price of the plywood in order to essentially cut a corner to meet a price point, the amount of glue, i.e. the amount of atomization, how fine, how much air is in the stream and how much glue is in the stream can be changed in order to uh, change the amount of glue that goes on the surface or the amount of moisture injected through the adhesive. And that's really the atomization of a sprayer gives us a lot more control over that. Moreover, a roller, well, if you've ever used a paint roller, <clears throat> you know, when you first dip it in the little pan, you know, it goes on really, really thick and you kind of have to spread it around at first and then it starts to flow a little bit better, but then it'll start to dry out and, and it's not quite putting an even coat on there. Moreover, the roller kind of takes time to, to warm up, to get saturated and start rolling out more evenly. The roller is a little bit harder to actually see are you getting a consistent thickness of coat? And here again is where the dye really came in. Like imagine putting green paint on a white wall. As that roller starts to get dry, you will see how that green kind of thins out, gets spotty in color. That's the same thing that's going on with the dye and the glue. But also one of the reasons that rollers have really given way more often than not to sprayers, because you can constantly keep the same amount of glue being put onto the surface by controlling the, the pressure in the sprayer. But as I said, you've got a great deal of control to uh, how much glue is in the stream. Moreover, how fast is the conveyor belt running that's moving the veneer through there? If you pick up the paste on the conveyor belt, you're gonna get an even thinner layer of glue that's applied. The crazy thing is, is sometimes there are um, alarms put in place in the system that say, you know, the glue um, feeder, the, the tank is actually running low. And, uh, that alarm can maybe go off for a while and the tank starts to get a little bit lower and the spray gun starts to get a little spotty. And if you've ever used like an HVLP gun, as the cup starts to go dry, you start to sometimes get it, um, it's not uh, spraying as finely, it's not atomizing, atomizing, is that a word? I think it's a word, atomizing uniformly and you get like sputters and, and, and large uh, glops of, of stuff coming out because there's there's too much air in the system and it just it's not finely sprayed anymore and you can actually see that in some plywood when it comes to the end of a run and maybe the glue pot has gotten a little low um, that alarm maybe went off too late it was set to go off too late or somebody wasn't quite paying attention now there's also automation built to that where the glue pot will be filled automatically when alarm goes off but these are all things that can affect how a plywood panel goes together and how, you know, I hear a lot of stories of people that say, yeah, my panel delaminated and they look closer and they realize there was absolutely no glue between those layers. But when heat and pressure was applied when they were pressing the panel, it just kind of stuck itself together. Or there was a little bit of glue that bl bled through from one layer to the other and it caused just a little bit of tack, but really there was no glue put between those, those veneer plies. Uh, stuff like that can happen all the time. You're also gonna find um, the alteration of the glue uh, by adding fillers that can uh, increase the viscosity or sometimes lower the viscosity. Mostly it's to increase the, vis not, not lower the viscosity, what I'm saying, that's an extender. Fillers would increase the viscosity in order to maybe provide a little bit of gap filling. So say you know that there are voids and things in there and the fillers can actually increase the viscosity um, at a particular point in the curing time. So it goes on on a low viscosity and it allows things to flow into those gaps. And then as it starts to tack up, the viscosity goes up dramatically and it forms a, a gap filling layer. That can certainly be done when you're working with lower quality veneers that need a lot more filling. 
Um, extenders are just the opposite. They are uh, decreasing the viscosity, making it runnier so that you can get more glue on the surface. A lot of times um, flowers are essentially used in this case to reduce that resin content that's, that's in the glue and um, just to the point where you're still getting a good bond, but you're also stretching the glue a little bit further. Here again is another way to alter the price point of a product. If you can get more panels per pot of glue, you can control the price. Glue can get very expensive, very expensive, especially in the exterior grade stuff. And the more panels you can create from that one you know, volume of glue, one refill of glue, the better. So it's important, just like we've been saying with every other part of this series, how the manufacturing process can change the price point. How changing the glue or changing how the glue is applied can change the price point you're looking at. And now this is getting particularly esoteric because a lot of times you're not gonna get this type of information from a dealer. Your dealer probably won't know, but you can dig into the technical specs and start looking at the glue and looking at the manufacturer. If you can find out who the manufacturer is, you can find out you know this particular product line is rolled on. This particular product line is sprayed on or all of our products use sprayed on glue. In my opinion, that's the better method if you hadn't figured that out already. So that can tell you right there, if this product line is rolled on with the glue, I may not wanna do that because I might have, the quality control may not be as consistent there. On the flip side though, as I said, with greater control over the atomization of the glue, you could actually end up in a situation where you are getting an even coat of glue, but maybe it's particularly thin. They figured out how to make it so unbelievably thin to stretch the glue as far as they can while still getting things to stick together. And if you're gonna be putting that plywood panel through a particularly stressful application, that might not be good enough. You might want a stronger glue bond or you might wanna switch the type of glue altogether. Um, types of glues, for a lot of times people will say urea formaldehyde or PVA or phenolic or melamine, but you'll also get um, alphabetic characteristics, type EF, type F, type E, type A glue. And this can often be even more confusing, but here again, if you know the manufacturer and you do a little bit of digging on their site, you can find out how they define those various types of glue. Again, they're not gonna give you the actual chemical formula, but honestly, what would we do with that anyway? You know, oh, there are 12 carbons to every silicon. No, that doesn't make sense. Sorry, <laughs> my, my organic chemistry is, is failing me at this point, but you get the point. What are you actually gonna do? Unless you are a chemist, um, I don't really know what you would do with a chemical formula or the, the various ratio, what we would do that level of information. But what you can at least do, and this is especially important if you've had a good experience or a bad experience, and you're trying to figure out how do I find that panel again? Well, what I bought before had this type of glue. So let me try to find another panel that has a similar type of glue. It had this type of glue application. So by themselves, it may not tell you a lot. Um, but once you have that good or bad experience, it can really help you a lot in buying or duplicating that experience down the road. So that's all I really got to say about glue. I mean, it can get really, really technical and frankly, well beyond my qualifications to talk about it. I'm a lumber guy. <laughs> I'm not getting knee deep into the, the weeds of, of, of the glue stuff, but I did want to bring it up because it is obviously another variable to consider when you are buying a sheet of plywood. So let's get on to the questions. And again, if you have questions for the show, you can go to lumberupdate.com. There is a form you can fill out and submit questions there. Heck, you can even type a comment uh, in response to any of the shows and leave a question, or you can um, 
uh, hit me up on Instagram. Uh, Lumber Update is the handle there, and you can send me messages or reply to any of my comments. I'm checking all that stuff, and uh, even if I'm not necessarily replying to all the direct messages, I'm getting them and I'm putting them on my notes and trying to get through them as much as I can. So we're going to start off. This is a question from Jay Menard, who said, I was curious when to use plywood or when to not use plywood versus solid wood. And I will send you back to the very beginning episode of this plywood series and say, really only you can answer that question. What is important to you in this particular build? If I'm gonna need large panels, i.e. either long or wide, plywood is gonna be, first of all, a more economical solution, but also a more weight effective solution. Um, building a large panel out of plywood or out of solid wood can get very, very heavy, can get very, very expensive, and you're going to deal with a lot more stability issues. That tangential and radial expansion and contraction seasonally can be a real problem with solid wood. Now, we can build around that and accommodate wood movement, but will it stay nice and flat like a sheet of plywood? So, for instance, if you're making uh, a dining top and say you're going to veneer it, well, if I'm gonna put veneer on this, I really don't want a lot of movement on that substrate. So plywood is a really good solution here. Building something like a bookcase that requires a long, narrow piece, maybe six, eight feet long and 12 inches wide, and it has floating shelves. Well, that could be potential problems for solid wood. Same time though, it could be potential problems for a veneer core ply. Um, and this is a perfect example for using a lumber core ply, which actually brings me to uh, a question that, oh shoot, who was it? Who was it? Give me a second. Matt's Woodshed on Instagram asked, why, what's the use case for lumber core? You know, if I, it seems to me the only reason I would use it is if I was making a curved panel. And I don't really understand that. I'm guessing what he's thinking is I will put like coopered staves together to make a coopered uh, curve and then veneer to that. I suppose that would be one alternative for lumber core plywood. I wouldn't recommend that. I would recommend doing more of a of a wiggle wood type application where you instead of cross laminating your your strips, you're actually um, not cross laminating <laughs> longitudinal laminating. You bent lamb basically that type of application. Lumber core is extraordinarily stiff. And you can go back to the modulus of rupture, modulus of elasticity episode I did a, a few uh, months ago about that stiffness. Lumber core has much, much greater stiffness than veneer ply plywood, veneer core plywood. So if you're looking at a furniture application like a bookshelf with floating shelves, so you don't have that shelf that's anchored into the side and it's keeping the walls from bowing out. Or maybe you have a particularly wide panel, um, like 48 inches wide standing up vertically or something it will stay a lot flatter without restraint. Whereas veneer core ply, it's gonna be super strong and hold screws really well, but you're gonna to wanna to fasten it to some sort of substrate to help hold it flat. It's not gonna have the same stiffness, significantly less stiffness than lumber core plywood. So I'm kind of answering two questions at the same time here, but as far as Jay's question on when to use it, when not to use it, it all comes down to what's important. If flatness is of major importance, then a sheet good is probably a good idea. But if weight is also a major, major importance, then I probably don't want to use MDF. MDF may be super flat, but it is so heavy. You know, so veneering situations, um, flatness situations, weight situations, if you particularly want lightweight, there are a lot of lightweight plywood panels out there. 
that make for really, really good solutions. In the end, there's no reason why you can't use solid lumber for everything, and there's no reason why you couldn't use plywood for everything, but you're gonna find, as with everything, certain products perform better than others, and whatever's most important to you will determine whether you use solid or whether you use ply. So David sent me a question, and he said that, um, I've been looking for some cherry plywood. I've looked at a couple different yards, and so far I found a high of $115, for cherry hardwood ply and a low for $90 for a single sheet of cherry ply. And um, he's, he's kind of looked at each yard and said each place carries a kind of Procore product, whatever that means. You gotta love these manufacturing terms. Um, I was expecting them to be expensive, but that seems quite pricey. But then again, a sheet of walnut around here, he's in Southern California, goes for $140. Um, is my location likely affecting the pricing? Absolutely. You know, location affects pricing and everything. Where was it manufactured? How far did it have to go to get there? What is the market landscape like locally? And honestly, sorry, Californians, everything seems to be more expensive out there. There's not a lot of manufacturers of high quality plywood on the West Coast, or for that matter, west of the Rocky Mountains. Well, that's not true. Uh, Columbia Forest Products, <laughs> great manufacturer of, of plywood. But as is so often, if it's manufactured in your backyard, they tend to export it everywhere else and you don't get it locally. But just the... the um, scarcity of high quality lumber yards out west in general makes prices a lot higher. But cherry and walnut, think of the solid wood prices. They are expensive woods and also not exactly known for perfectly defect free. Cherry can be a little bit difficult to get solid lumber that's wide and it's 100% free of defects. Walnut can be almost impossible. Walnut is, a, is an open field tree that branches and turns into knots all over the place. It's very difficult to get a good quality veneer log out of both of those species. So right away, you're gonna find that, that a cherry ply or walnut ply is going to be more expensive than say oak or maple ply because of the scarcity of the veneer sheets. Now he goes on to say that um, I'm concerned also about quality and he actually sent me a picture so I could take a look at this, but the veneer lines, the spaces between the veneer sheets are quite pronounced. In fact, it seems almost unusable for any kind of large paneling. I wouldn't even want it visible on the side of a cabinet. So what he's talking about, and I first thought there were maybe gaps between the veneer leaves, but it's, it's a sequence match panel. The one that he sent me is kind of sort of a book match panel, but it's really meant to be sequence matched. There is a numbered flitch and they are numbered and laid out sequence, one, two, three, four, five. But it's not a perfect match, nor is it meant to be you know, an exact book match. One might call it a pleasing match. Um, looking at the panel he sent me, I believe it's actually a center match. And if you wanna go back to the veneer episode and listen to you know, sequencing, center match, running match, all those types of things, because cherry can be difficult to get defect free, Obviously, to get the, the most cohesive looking face, you would have a rotary cut or a peeled veneer, so one sheet of veneer on the surface. But as I said, that can be really hard to get in cherry. You're gonna run into defects when you peel a log like that. So more often than not, it ends up being um, guillotine sliced into small sheets and then either stitched or laid up together. This panel that he sent me actually is pretty attractive in my opinion. There are no gaps between the, the, the leaves by any means but they've, they've taken their nice wide sheets here. Um, and looking at each leaf of veneer, you're probably at least eight to 10 inches wide. So it, it's quite attractive, but I also think that eight to 10 inches wide kind of ends up biting them in the long run because when you step out and look at the panel 
as a whole, you definitely can see there's a seam, there's a seam, there's a seam. This is not going to give you the look of solid wood. There's no doubt. It is definitely plywood. But here again, because of that species and the inavailability of long rotary cut defect-free veneers, that's what you're looking at. If a pleasing face, here again, what's most important to you? If a pleasing face is what you really, really need, then I recommend looking for uh, a quartered faced ply, a quarter sawn cherry ply, or an actual book matched cherry ply panel. Um, just plain old sequence match, running match, or center match, there's not gonna be as much attention paid to how the grain flows across those, um, those joint lines from one leaf to the next. Whereas a book match, absolutely they're gonna pay attention to that. A quarter match or a rift and quartered match is going to just blend together. Just like gluing up a solid wood panel, those straight grain lines of rift and quartered are gonna blend much better. And that straight line between the leaves, the glue line will disappear altogether. If that's really what you're looking for, if you wanna hide the seams altogether, I don't recommend a sequence match cherry ply. However, that's gonna drive your cost up. <laughs> it's going to drive your cost up a lot more and you probably, yeah, I, I don't know, it's going to vary from location to location, but you probably will be looking at $130, $140 a sheet for a good quarter sawn cherry ply. So again, ask yourself, how important is that for my particular build? Can I get it cheaper with a different style of, of plywood or can I do it with solid wood? So Brad has a good question. Um, he says, I have a question just about standard sizes in the lumber industry and where they originate. What is exactly the deal with four by eight plywood? It seems like kind of an arbitrary dimension adopted as a standard for all sheet goods, minus the five by five panels, but we won't talk about those in polite company. So uh, good question, Brad. Um, four by eight is, is architecture driven. The typical ceiling in a house is eight feet tall and uh, four feet, well, certainly eight foot that accommodates for that. You can put up sheathing and it goes from floor to ceiling, uh, even with just a little bit of room for expansion gap. And four foot perfectly aligns with the 16 inch stud spacing. So it allows you to have good attachment points on the stud and still be able to have sheets meet in the middle point of a stud. So as the two panels come together, they're over top of a stud. That's the whole reason for that. Uh, the wall, the stud structure of a, of a wall behind it is why four by eight sheets exist. Five by five panels or five by 10 panels exist in very much the same reason. They can be used for very specific operations where that five foot length makes a lot more sense. And the 10 foot length makes a lot more sense. I see them used a lot in boat builders, but also stepping away from plywood, talking about sheet goods, look at sheetrock. A lot of times sheetrock is specifically longer, or of course you have sheetrock instances where you're, you're um, uh, um, walling in, walling in, sheetrocking in like a cathedral ceiling area where you need a longer section. The sizes of the sheet guides are determined entirely by the construction industry. So the hobbyist woodworkers and the furniture makers out there, and we think, man, gotta call this big old sheet of plywood around, I'm just cutting up into little parts. We are absolutely in the minority. Most of sheet goods are used as sheeting that go up against a stud wall. And that's where those dimensions come from. Matthew asked, what about the factory edges of plywood? How reliable are they? Are they square or are they flat? Well, the easy answer is don't trust them. Some of it will depend upon the manufacturer. Um, plywood, when it's laid up, is specifically made larger 
than four by eight. In fact, a lot of plywood sheets, if you actually measure it, you'll find that it's not actually 48 inches. Sometimes it's 49 inches and 96 and a half, or sometimes 97 inches. And this will vary dependent upon the manufacturer, but it also can vary a little bit dependent upon the run from the same manufacturer. But it's laid up to be larger. So we'll say it's, it's laid up to be 50 inches by 100 inches. Once it's pressed, once it's cured, it is then cut to size. And ideally, it's cut so that everything is square. It's pretty safe to say that um, it's flat because it's cut all in, in, in one blade that's cutting the thing. So as long as that blade is straight, you should be fine. Why it could possibly go out of flat is movement after the fact. If it is a cheaper panel where all the moisture wasn't pulled from it when it was manufactured and there's internal stresses going on because of differential and moisture from the manufacturer process, you can end up with some movement that can cause an edge to go out of flat or certainly cause the whole panel to buckle and cup. But if the, the, the bigger issue that I see is, is one edge square to the other? And my thing is just assume that it's not. Don't ever build a project counting on that square and that flat edge. And if you get a panel and you check it and it's square, hey, good for you, that's awesome. Now you can mark that as square, just like I would mark a solid wood board once I jointed it, that's now my reference edge and here's my reference end. You're gonna do the same thing with plywood. Don't trust it until you verify it and then mark it once you verify it. But it can it can go out of square many, many ways from manufacturer to the, the lumber rack wherever you're buying it. And it also could be possibly cut out of square due to a, maybe a misalignment in the actual factory uh, knife edges themselves. Uh, Wooden Arms Workshop asks about foam core plywood for doors specifically. Um, and, and doors, but also specific industries. Foam core is certainly from an insulation perspective, it has a, is it a high R value or low R value? I'm totally forgetting. Whatever insulates better. I think it's a high R value. Oh well. <laughs> Just one of those things that I think I had to make room for in my database of a brain and it got dumped off somewhere, probably in favor of some other completely esoteric factoid. But whatever it is, for better insulation, foam, um, because of the amount of air in it, can insulate quite well, both acoustically but also thermodynamically. So it'll keep you warmer, but it'll also keep things quieter. It also is incredibly lightweight, so it can have a, a double effect there. If you're looking for lightweight applications like the aerospace industry or the yacht manufacturers or RV makers where you gotta have lightweight on the wheels or on the wing or whatever, or on the waves, um, plus that sound deadening. Um, if you find a lot of foam core boards are used around like the engine room of a boat in order to deaden the, the sound of that, that engine down there. Um, used in a lot of instances in between walls in apartment buildings in order to create um, better sound dampening as well. Doors, primarily it's for insulation, but also there's a certain amount of, of acoustical dampening there uh, uh, additionally. So again, it comes down to what's important in that particular door. If I'm building an interior door and I don't really need insulating properties, yeah, it's not really necessary. And you'll find that those specialized foam core panels are quite pricey. So certainly you don't want to just use them willy-nilly unless just money is absolutely no object whatsoever. Rum Runner Guy, that's a good name, asks about joining sheets together. Like when you actually need to, to well, create joinery, a bond from one joint to another, what do you use? Um, well, 
here again, it depends upon the type of plywood. And if joinery is important to you, that's going to dictate the type of plywood that you buy. A lower quality plywood that is going to have inconsistent veneer thickness, it's going to have more voids, it's going to have more defects in the veneers, both in the core and on the face, can run into problems when you're actually trying to cut joinery into it. If you're trying to cut a rabbit and suddenly you run into a huge void, um, well, now that rabbit floor is not flat anymore. It's going to cause problems when it mates up to, say, you're doing a shiplap application. It'll cause problems mating to the other panel. Or it could possibly rip out dramatically. Say you're running a, a router to create that rabbit, and you hit a void, and it splinters all the hell and tears up the interior um, laminations. Or say it delaminates because there were enough voids in there. There wasn't enough glue on it. So if you're going to be cutting joinery in general, you want to look for a much more consistent panel. That's where your Baltic birch shop type plywoods really come into play because they've got a much more cohesive core that you can route an edge onto, you can route joinery into. Or you go to that multi-layer, some, some people call it Europly, where it's got you know 21 layers of veneer and the stuff is running $300 a sheet. But it's the same as milling, actually it's better than milling solid wood or something like milling MDF without the fuzziness and the toxic formaldehyde that comes out of it and cutting it and the weight. So that can be a major, major importance. But if you've got the proper quality of plywood, as far as how you join it, it doesn't really matter. It depends upon the application. It'd be the same way you would join solid wood. In fact, you might be able to count on it even more because of the, the engineered nature of that high quality plywood panel. Do you need a scarf joint? I don't know, it depends on if you're spanning a long distance, if you're joining end to end, and maybe you need that longer glue surface of a scarf joint. Or if you just need a, a, you know, a small glue surface, a rabbit can be perfectly fine. Heck, dovetails can be cut into plywood. Um, tenons can be cut into plywood, loose tenons, all that stuff. It all depends upon the quality of the panel itself. And in general, where people have problems with joinery and plywood is because they're buying a lower quality plywood and because of the inconsistency in the thickness of the overall panel but also the thicknesses of the individual plies and you run into issues with actually getting your joints to line up because one sheet to the other is not exactly the same. Um, also, when you tear into that cross grain layer, you know, it would be great if you're cutting a rabbit and the floor of that rabbit is nice and long grain, but you can't always do that. You, know, you end up cutting the rabbit and you run into cross grain and you get a particularly fuzzy surface. Here again, good quality panel is going to alleviate a lot of those problems. So type of joinery is up to the application as with any material. It doesn't really matter whether it's solid wood, steel, or plywood. Choose the right material and um, the joinery should you know, dictate itself based upon how much strength you need, what, you know, what, what you're doing with the joint around a corner, spanning a distance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, other dog design asked about sourcing plywood for the hobbyist. And I would urge you to go back and look at the, the very first episode in this, in this series about, you know, make sure you understand what you're looking for and understand how to talk about what you're looking for in the various components. In fact, just listen to this whole series to make sure you have a good understanding of what comprises a plywood panel. Now, that being said, this is particularly difficult. A lot of the higher quality panels that I talk about just are not available to the average hobbyist. If all you have is Home Depot and Lowe's or maybe a lumber yard, a local lumber yard that happens to carry plywood, it can be really difficult. You have very little options. 
or places that have really good options, maybe they are wholesale only um, and they're just selling to contractors and things like that. That's starting to change a little bit more with the advent of the internet and it might be worth a call at least to one of those guys that you think is wholesale only. The worst they can do is say, I'm sorry, I can't help you, but um, unless they're absolute jerks, which don't get me wrong, that's highly possible. Um, they'll at least maybe point you to somebody that they're selling to, or at least make a recommendation for you on where you can find plywood. There are some sources online that you can buy plywood. Now you're not gonna buy four by eight sheets because it's just cost and effective to ship such a thing. But if you are a hobbyist, you may not need a four by eight sheet. If you're building a piece of furniture, you might be okay with a two by two or a two by four sheet. And there are certainly places that can get it to you surprisingly cheaper than you might think and of a good quality. But I say the same thing with solid wood as I would with plywood. Sometimes you need to pursue um, a less than traditional source, AKA piggyback on someone else's order. If you don't have anybody, any dealers around you that sell plywood, or if you have a dealer that only sells to contractors or sells in wholesale, again, finding out who they're selling to, or look up local cabinet shops. That's your best source. Cabinet makers, cabinet shops specifically, they use a lot of plywood. And they generally want to use a higher quality plywood because a lot of times they're using CNC machines. Production cabinet shops are doing all the grunt work with the CNC, and if you put an inconsistent thickness panel on a CNC machine, eh, it's not good. Not good at all. And again, if they're cutting joinery in it, they want a good quality panel. So look up cabinet shops in your area and reach out to them. Ask to speak with the shop foreman if a person exists and just tell them exactly what you want to do. Look, I'm a hobbyist. You know, I use a fair amount of plywood or I, I just need a sheet of plywood, but I can't find it anywhere. Can I buy a sheet from you? And like, oh no, we need everything. We keep close track of everything. Okay, well, who are you ordering from and when is your next order coming in? Can I buy three or four sheets from you in the next one? Can we just make sure your next order has enough extra for me so that I can buy it when it comes in? I have told a lot of people to do this. And certainly some people have never gotten back to me on how it went, but I've never had a person get back to me and say, oh, they turned me down flat. In fact, everybody who's gotten back to me has told me what a great experience it was. I work with cabinet shops all across the country um, at my day job. We also have a millwork house on two different locations where we buy a lot of plywood. Every single one of these cabinet shops has an internal inventory that they're using. They also have an internal cutoff bin. So it can be a great source for solid wood lumber, but also plywood. And if you can get away with something that's not necessarily a four by eight sheet, you'd be surprised what you might actually get for free or for pennies. Or if you need full four by eight sheets, as I said, piggybacking on someone else's order is a very legitimate way to do this. The same thing can work with a lumber yard. If you go to a lumber yard and all they do is sell wholesale, well, when are you bringing in some more plywood? You know, can I possibly add some onto that order? Or if you're ordering a bunk of plywood for a particular customer, can I just take three sheets off the top of that order? Can we augment that order? It's not that buying a single sheet of plywood is inefficient for a wholesaler. It's stocking, breaking packs, and selling one sheet at a time is inefficient. When they're buying it, they can buy you know 25 sheets, 27 sheets, and it's not really that big of a deal to them to add two or three more when they're already buying 100 sheets or 20 sheets. So just talk to people and tell them what you're trying to do and explain to them, look, I don't have any other resource. Like I can't get what I need from Home Depot. Can you help me? And you'll be really surprised how the industry itself can step up and help you out on that. Cabinet shops, that's the way to go, man. Absolutely. 
So here's an interesting one. This is from Ricardo, and he's wondering about the best panel for laser cutting and uh, engraving. Well, this is an, uh, an area where I have zero experience, but I wanted to bring it up because it's a great case study in how do we know what kind of plywood to buy? Well, what's important to you? You guys getting tired of hearing me say that yet? So I did a little bit of Googling. Uh, you know, certainly I know what laser engraving is. I've seen it done, but having not done it personally, what are the struggles that you may run with? And just off the top of my head, certainly consistency is gonna be key. Consistent thickness is gonna be an issue because you've got inconsistent thickness throughout the panel. You know, that laser's on a constant power as it's cutting through. And if it runs through a thicker section, it may not cut all the way through, you know, because if it's going at a, at, a, at a set feed rate or set speed and a set power, it runs through that thicker section, it may not cut all the way through. If it runs through a thinner section, it could cut really fast and possibly burn the edges, make it darker than that thicker section. The other thing is if you have inconsistency in the plies themselves, you might end up with a lot more burning or possibly delamination. So these are all things that you really need consistency in order to get that nice, even light brown or even dark edge that doesn't leave you like sooty fingertips. Imagine cutting like puzzle pieces or something. That one comes to mind. Or those um, bathymetric diagrams I see all the time. My father-in-law has one in his office of, of the local um, waters around his house in Maine. And there's that really cool kind of singed edge to it. Well, all that precision cutting we want to make sure that you've got some consistency. So honestly, where I think you'll be looking for is uh, the species itself needs to be consistent. So a Douglas fir panel would be a no-no. Think about Douglas fir. There's an incredible, you know, just look at Douglas fir. It's striated. It's very stripy in appearance. And there's a great density difference from early growth to late growth. And that makes it difficult to work with any tool. It gives you that washboard effect. But also imagine a laser cutter running through that that early growth is gonna burn really, really fast. That late growth may not burn at all. It's also gonna create a rippled effect from one layer to the other, which just makes an out of flat panel. But if you use something like an Akume panel, Akume, uh, most you know, often used in marine grade plywood, Akume is like the most homogenous wood species out there. There's like no feature whatsoever. It's incredibly boring stuff, but man, is it consistent. And if you've got a panel that's made of nothing but Akume, single species throughout with exact um, consistency from ply to ply, it's going to cut predictably with a laser cutter. Or think of another homogenous species, basswood. There are a lot of manufacturers out there who use basswood as the core because it's quite lightweight. Um, aerospace, um, airplane panel manufacturers use basswood a lot for their interior plies, or sometimes they even make kind of a faux lumber core where they're using a thicker basswood center. Well, basswood is very lightweight, but also incredibly consistent. It's one of the reasons basswood is so wonderful for carving is because it has very little grain to it. So just think about what would be important. And I'm sure I'm missing things because I'm not, uh, I don't use a laser engraver, but where, more importantly, where are the problems you've had with laser engravers and plywood before? And think about how you would address those. More than likely, consistency of species, same species from the core and the veneer, and the consistency of the species itself. You know, heavily porous wood like oak, not so good. Uh, heavy late wood, early wood differentiation like Douglas fir, also not good. Homogenous is what we're thinking uh, more than anything in this. So thank you, Ricardo. Kind of left field question there, but I like it because it kind of applies what we are, what we're talking about here. Um, 
mortified. It wants to know where does the sawdust for MDF come from? Well, it comes from lumber mills. <laughs> I can tell you right now, um, we cart off about three tractor trailer loads of sawdust every single week from my mill, and we keep about eight or nine tractor trailer loads in order to power our own boilers for our dry kilns. So there's a lot of dust being produced in our mill, and there are a lot of sawmills, and we're not even a sawmill. We're a millwork. You know, we're running molders and things like that. Imagine how much dust sawmills produce. So that certainly is going into it. But more and more these days, you'll find a lot of recycled uh, cardboard containers like milk cartons and things. Um, uh, paper, newspaper. Yes, newspaper still exists, right, somewhere. Um, even plant products like corn silk gets used and recycled into um, MDF. I mean, it's all cellulose products. The fact is, there's a lot of processing that goes on with that wood dust and those that, those various products, whether you're making fiberboard, OSB, particle board, or, or MDF. There's a, a lot of processing that happens in order to unify and things that are injected and added to the mix to, to make an MDF panel. So it's coming from a lot of places, and for the most part, it's pretty much all recycled. I don't think I know of a manufacturer that's specifically making dust in order to make plywood. There's enough there's enough um, byproduct from other industries that they don't need to do that. Matt wanted to know if you would ever make your own plywood or would you just veneer over commercial ply? The answer is yes, I have done both. Um, and there are going to be situations where maybe you need, um, again, what's most important to you. Well, I really need thicker plies. You know, I want a, a, certainly a balanced number of plies, but I want to make sure they're thicker so they machine a little better. Or I want to make sure that I've got the right species in there. Go back to this, that whole basswood idea for laser engraving. Well, it can be difficult to find that, but maybe you can find solid wood basswood. Well, you can saw up your own veneers. Certainly, if you have a drum sander, it makes it super easy to sand them to consistent thickness, and you can lay up your own panel. Or maybe you wanted to create wiggle wood where you've got the grain all running the same direction. You can do the same thing easily in the shop. The problem becomes when you're looking for large sheets. You know, I have a vacuum bag in my shop, but it really only can fit a two by four panel in it. So if I needed something larger than that, it gets a little difficult. But if I need something that's a two by two or like a 12 by 12 panel, and I have done this before, I've laid up my own plywood. Works great. I have also taken commercial plywood and just applied my own veneer over it. That's a great example for a Baltic birch or a shop ply where it's not all that pretty, but you know that it's going to be nice and stable. It's going to have a good, consistent core to it. But say I want it to be prettier and I'm not able to find that cherry veneer. So going back to uh, who was it asked the question about cherry? Matthew? Mike, I think, who asked about the, the expensive cherry. Well, you might be able to find a pretty good deal on cherry veneer. And then you can lay up your own panel to get that perfect, pleasing surface. Um, that's actually a lot of fun. So, and you can you can skip ahead and not have to go to all the trouble of, of, of you know laying up your own panel by buying a Baltic birch. I keep saying Baltic birch even though it's a brand name. A shop panel and putting your own veneer over top of it. And it actually it's you know it's it's what I um, I, I can to uh, my buddy Matt who's you know sawing his own logs and building furniture from from trees that that he either. Well, doesn't that he felt, but he saw it in the logs. You can do the, get the same satisfaction from an engineered perspective where I laid up that panel myself and I veneered that panel myself. That can be a lot of fun and also give you things that just are not possible. You ever seen an ingrain veneered panel? It's pretty cool looking, but that's another thing that you can do by doing it in your own shop. Um, Dave wants to know, why are all the patches football shaped instead of squares or circles? So 
look at a plywood panel, there's a void somewhere and it's been patched and they're all football shaped. Simple answer, the football shape or the oblong oval nests together with less waste than any other shape. So if you've got to cut a bunch of shapes out of a sheet of veneer and you want to stack them all together to produce the least amount of waste possible, a square produces a heck of a lot of waste. It's very difficult to, to lump that together, you know, and still leave room to cut them out. A circle produces even more waste because now, you know, you've got all those weird where you have corners on squares, you've got rounded sections that it can produce a lot of waste. The oblong football shape can be nested and stacked very closely together and produce um, more per sheet with less waste. It's also a lot easier to fit into place. Squares, because they have four square corners, require more precision, whereas the football shape actually will pop into place a lot easier because there's only two points that you're trying to snap into place, whereas four points can cause some splintering and things like that. But in the end, it's efficiency. It's You can get more football shapes out of a sheet of veneer than you can squares or circles. Whew. That was a lot. Um, if I missed your question, I apologize. I got a lot of these, but um, I didn't want to, you know, run on, on, and on, and on. But um, man, this is this is good stuff. There's a lot of plywood questions out there. Definitely, if you continue to have plywood questions, send them my way. Um, I did have a, another question that I wanted to, to save to the end because it's referencing past episodes. But in previous episodes, I mentioned a, a plywood handbook put out by HPVA, Hardwood Plywood Veneer Association. And you can, I will put it in the show notes of this episode, but I've also have linked to it in episode 39. So that's, uh, it's, it's not free. I think it used to be free, although somebody might be able to find a digital version of it somewhere, but it's not expensive either. It's like $18, I think. Um, and it's a really nice kind of handy guide, a resource thing to keep around the shop when it comes to determining what type of plywood you want. So I got asked that question. I'd mentioned it before, but like a lot of you, like me, when you listen to podcasts, you tend to be driving and you couldn't figure out where that link was. So I will put it in the show notes of this episode, episode 41, but you also can find it on episode 39 as well on my website at lumberupdate.com. So again, thank you everybody for the questions. Um, I'm getting a lot more, a lot more, um, and I'm trying my best to kind of lump them together kind of into themes. Obviously this was a plywood theme and I pulled a lot of my plywood questions that I had. So if you send a question in and you haven't heard it on the show, it may just be that I'm sandbagging it for another episode when it kind of makes sense. But I do think I'm gonna do just kind of a general Q&A show pretty soon because I do have a lot of miscellaneous ones that I can't imagine ever forming any kind of cohesive theme. So stay tuned and please keep sending in those questions. If you haven't heard an answer yet, uh, don't get discouraged. I will do my best to answer every one of them. So thanks everybody as always. I appreciate the, the feedback I've gotten on this plywood series. It's been a lot of fun. There's obviously been a lot of confusion that I'm glad to be able to clear up. If you have ideas of other multi-part series where you want to see me really dive deep in a particular topic, let me know. I have a few ideas, but I certainly want to hear from you guys, um, the audience, on what is most important to you. So that's it. As I say every week, go buy some wood or go buy some plywood.